take a minute here and begin to celebrate Advent by lighting the Advent candle. And that the Advent candle, or the Advent wreath here, and the first candle is called the candle of hope or the candle of prophecy. And Michelle's going to go ahead and light it for us. This candle represents the hope that's given to us through the prophets, through the ages. Um, when God created everything in the world, he saw that it was very good. But then evil entered the picture with the fall from grace in the Garden of Eden. Humanity was separated from God and began walking in darkness. But a promise was given that one day a Savior, the Messiah, would come to restore humanity's relationship to God. This brought hope, and this hope is a focus throughout the Old Testament, which is full of prophecies pointing to the Messiah. But the hope is not just for the Old Testament. It's not just for times past. It's just not for people who are dead and gone. The hope is for us today because there's still prophecy that points to better times coming, just like it did for them. They were to look ahead to better times, knowing that what was to come was going to be better than what they had. And we have that same hope today, that uh, what we have in front of us in the future is going to be better than what we have right now. And some, some of what we have right now is pretty good. Some of what we had is kind of stinky. If the COVID blues have been getting you down for the last almost two years, you know exactly what I'm talking about. But we have better things to hope for in the future. And the prophets have painted that picture just as well as it painted the picture of Jesus coming the first time. So Pastor Steve will be talking about Advent in the next few weeks. And uh, we'll be singing a lot of Christmas carols. And one of the, one of the carols, one of the groupings of carols we'll be singing later today is called uh, the Revised Emmanuel Set. It's one we've done here at Caring for a long time. It goes back into the 90s. And uh, it's got some songs that kind of capture some of what the hope is. So the first song, O Come and Come Emmanuel, is a song of longing. And we sing it, and hopefully you'll sing it, with a sense of longing to remember that even as creation groaned for Jesus to come as Savior, we groan for Jesus to come as King and to, and to rescue us from what we have right now. And then the second one, Born in Bethlehem, celebrates the, the physical manifestation of Jesus as a person on this earth, which we do not doubt that he walked this earth as a person. And then the final one, Emmanuel, is God with us, is what Emmanuel means, and it points to not just Jesus coming the first time, but Jesus coming the second time as king and celebrates his kingship. So hopefully you'll enjoy that. Hopefully you'll enjoy what Pastor Steve has to share for us today. In, uh, in getting us started with Advent and giving us a chance to reboot our thinking about Christmas and about life. What would it take? Um, you're going to hear that uh, title uh, until Christmas Eve because this the uh, the series that I'm going to cover and just asking us to uh, again. There's no surprise as far as what the Christmas story is. It's pretty much the same message you're going to hear every year, uh, and it, that's the way that it should be. Uh, but I want us to perhaps look at it in a slightly different fashion in terms of. What would it take for my life to continue to be or to start to be significantly different uh, because of the Christmas story? Undoubtedly, some of you that have been around for a while have heard me explain that when doing message planning around the holidays, <clears throat> I typically start by reviewing uh, what I did in the previous years. 
And so that's where I went. And last year I did a series of messages under the heading of Rediscover Christmas. At the time, we were trying to figure out what Christmas was supposed to look like after spending months dealing with a global pandemic. I think I'm not the only one to say didn't have a clue that we'd still be asking the same questions 12 months later. Um, and it, as I looked back through what we did last year, uh, if I say so myself, I thought some of the things that the series touched on were pretty relevant. Therefore, because of all that has and all that has not changed over the past year, I decided to kick off this Advent by doing a quick review of the themes from last year's series and then asking you to wrestle with two questions. And the first one is on the screen, and it will remain on the screen throughout the message, and that's, what would it take? But the other question that I would have you ask is, especially for those of you who heard some of the series last year, how have I done? How have I done this year applying what was taught last year? And then what would it take to apply what's mentioned this year to the year to come? So how did I, how have I done and what would it take? Uh, the first, and again, I just want to say something. Um, Steve and Ruben are doing a great job back there. Um, right now our computer is being less than cooperative. So I've only got one slide, so hopefully that will be no issue whatsoever. With the worship team slides, if they get kind of wacky, it's just because the computer's being wacky. Uh, we actually have ordered a replacement, and I think this one knows that its replacement is on the way, and it's being a little passive-aggressive. Not that I know anything about being passive-aggressive. But anyway... Uh, so the, the first message last year, um, we talked about finding hope in our uncertainties. As Reuben said, this week, the first Sunday of Advent, the prophecy candle, the hope candle, and that's the emphasis. Not sure about the rest of you, but for me, there has been no shortage of uncertainty over the past year. Last year in my intro, I rattled off a list of eight broad areas that I consider national areas of uncertainty. This year, every one of those is still very real, plus I could easily add a few more without a moment's hesitation. And then for me personally, uh, this year has brought some very real personal areas of uncertainty, and I suspect I'm not the exception. So finding hope in our uncertainty should be a big deal to us. So the question for me was, how have I done with finding hope in my uncertainty in the past year? And as I looked at it and I thought about it, maybe I'm 50-50. I've gained some ground in some areas, but I've struggled in some areas. And so for me this week, this year, to start another Advent season with a reminder of what it might look like for me to find hope in my uncertainties is relevant and significant. While our circumstances may not have changed much uh, from where we were at last year with regard to the pandemic and with regard to areas of our lives, again, some of you uh, don't have the same issues you did last year with uncertainty. Others of you have more issues with uncertainty. But what I would emphasize is while our circumstances may or may not have changed, 
the source of true hope has not changed. And it never will change. So the question is, what would it take for me to find hope in my uncertainty? And, and this is a question I ask myself. What would it take for me to live hope-filled and hopeful regardless of the uncertainty that surrounds me? And as I said, the answer is the same as it was last year. Here's a clue. It's the same as it will be next year and the year after and the year after. Romans chapter 8, verses 24 through 26 put it this way. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. I was good with it right till we got to the we wait for it patiently. Anybody else there? But for me, this doesn't apply to any of you, I'm sure, but for me... What comes immediately after that, it says, uh, but if we hope for what we do not have, excuse me, if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently, period. Next sentence starts out, in the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. And for me, that's helpful to realize, I don't have to manufacture hope for myself. Because he meets me and he meets you at your greatest point of weakness, and he will offer us his hope when our hope is lacking. Some of you have those kinds of friends where whenever you're, whatever you're trying to do, if you're just coming up a little bit short, they're those people who come along and they just make up the difference. Whether it is how they serve, whether they support you in financially or prayer or whatever. Jesus is that for us. He is our source of hope, and he is the one who fills in those gaps. Jeremiah 29, 11. I've used it a lot over the past 18 months. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Some of you have heard me say before, many of you have probably heard me say before, there are seasons where I have to read that three or four times a day just to keep going. He has plans to prosper me. He never has plans to harm me. He may let me learn a hard lesson because I'm being a knucklehead, but that's not plans to harm me. He plans to give me hope and a future. And this is church, folks, so this shouldn't surprise you. That future doesn't stop here on earth. My hope in today's uncertainty, I certainly hope that whatever challenges I'm facing, and I hope that whatever challenges you're facing, and I hope that whatever challenges we are facing get better in this life. But that's not my real hope. My real hope is I know that I know that I know that in the next life, it will get way better. Far better than I could ever imagine and better than you could ever imagine. Romans chapter 15, verse 13. I often use it in funeral messages. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. He is the God of hope. 
He will fill us with joy and peace as we trust in him so that we may overflow with hope, not by the power of our will, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. Because again, my hope can be pretty fleeting, but his hope can be overpowering. And it is by the power of his Holy Spirit that it comes. Some of you have heard me say this countless times. But when I look at a passage like the two we've just looked at, Jeremiah 29, 11, I, I make it personal. God, I, I know that you have good plans for me. Father, help me to trust in your plans to prosper me. Father, I know that you never plan to harm me. And Father, I thank you that you plan to give me a hope and a future. Romans fifteen thirteen, Dear God, you are the God of hope. Fill me today with all joy and peace. Help me to trust in you. And Father, I look forward to the day that your Holy Spirit wells up in, within me. And I begin to overflow with hope by the power of that Spirit. Take those verses and don't just memorize the verse. Make it personal for you. So that was, and again, some of you may have gotten nervous when I said I'm going to recap an entire five-week series in one message. So we're going to keep cooking along, all right? Um, that was the first week, finding hope in our uncertainties. Next was finding peace in our struggles. So how have I done this year with finding peace in my struggles? I, I, let me just say, I suspect... For those of you that heard the message last year, that I did such a good job with that message that none of you have had any difficulty this year finding peace in your struggles, right? So we can just skip that, right? Seriously, for me, this is a constant struggle. Uh, for way, 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 way too long. Now, you, you can hear me say this and think, Dude, how could you have been so clueless? But for much of my life, I kept waiting for the day that everything in my life was just perfectly in order, thinking that it would somehow stay that way and I could be at peace. I'm embarrassed to say how old I was before I figured out it ain't never going to happen. And so I have to figure out, I have to open myself up to a means of finding peace in my struggles, not waiting for my struggles to be over so that I could find peace. As I said, for me, uh, turn on the news, open my email, answer the phone, look at my computer monitor, have a conversation with someone, and my peace can disappear faster than my paycheck, and that's pretty quick. Maybe that's just me, but I suspect others of us struggle with that. So the question is, yes, how have I done, what did I do last year? How have I done with finding peace? But in all likelihood, regardless of how we've done, it will be a continual ongoing challenge for us. So what would it take for me to find peace in my struggles? The answer is simple. To lean harder into the source of true peace. But as Jimmy Dillon just told me, along this very same line just before I walked up here, it's a lot easier than it sounds, or harder than it sounds. 
but it's still the answer. Just because I struggle to do it doesn't mean it's not the right thing to do. Ephesians chapter 2, verse, verse 14, speaking of Christ, it says, For he himself is our peace. And again, for me, my biggest mistake is thinking that peace is a state of being. But biblically, peace is a person. And for me to know a peace that I can sustain or that will sustain me in the face of my struggles means I have to connect with the person. Because I can't always control, try as I might, as most of you know, I can't always control the circumstances around me. In reality, I never can. I just think that I can. But I can control how close I strive to be to the source of true peace. And that is the person of Christ. This is Christmas. It wouldn't be Christmas if we didn't hear Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 through 7 numerous times. So I'll get us started on the first Sunday of Advent. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor. Hallelujah. Anybody need a Wonderful Counselor? He will be called Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The very name of our Savior is the Prince of Peace. Who better to help me find peace in the in the midst of my struggles than the Prince of Peace? Of his greatness, excuse me, of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. No end to his peace. If I'm not tapping into it, it's not because it's not there. And, and please understand, if you're struggling with this, I get it. I have to come back and remind myself of this over and over and over again. But at the end of the day, it's still true whether I can grasp it or not. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. He will forever be the Prince of Peace. And he will forever be looking to help us, to guide us into peace in this life as we hope for the peace of eternity. And then Philippians chapter 4, 4 through 7. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Most of you know me well enough to know I want stuff to make sense. I, I want to understand. But this verse reminds me, especially in the midst of my struggles, I'm not always going to understand it. But it doesn't mean that it's not there. And it doesn't mean that I can tap, can't tap into it. The peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And again, I think about simply praying and asking his peace to transcend my understanding and to transcend my circumstances, to transcend my struggles and to guard my hearts, to guide my heart and guide my mind. And can I just say, if you know someone, if someone you love and care about 
is struggling to find peace in the midst of their struggles, that's a really good prayer to pray for them. <clears throat> and and trust me, <clears throat> I don't want to give the implication that it's easy. Uh, it's interesting. I was having a conversation with my doctor about having trouble sleeping. And, and she said, <clears throat> now, some of you know, I've been doing this a long time. Some of you know that my undergraduate degree is in psychology. And I'm explaining to her the trouble I'm having sleeping and just processing stuff and all this. And she said, have you considered seeing a counselor? And I said, well, actually, and some of you know, I have seen a counselor before. But I know what I need to do. And I know what they're going to tell me to do. I'm just having a hard time doing it. And she said, oh, well, you got to figure that out. <laughs> So, so please understand, I get it, but just because I struggle to do it doesn't make it any less applicable and relevant. Finding joy in our discouragements. <clears throat> so how have I done with finding joy in my discouragements? Most of you know me well enough to know I'm just always bubbling over with joy. Um, that was just a no-brainer for me. Seriously. I'm usually swimming against the current on this one. And if I'm going to succeed, I always have to put the facts ahead of the feelings. Fact one, God does not change. If I'm at the peak of the mountaintop, and if I really am bubbling over with joy, some of you would want to have me evaluated, but if I am... God is God. And if I'm in the pits, God is God. And he has not changed. Fact two, he and he alone is the source of lasting joy. I, I love it when things are going great in my world. I love it when things are going great in your world. I can siphon your joy off and, and appropriate it as my own. But the reality is, He's the source of joy regardless of how I feel about things, regardless of how discouraged I am or how encouraged I am. Fact three, and I just this one just sticks. I have a hard time saying it. But I can choose joy. I, I mean, it's biblical. I get it. I get it. If you come up to me when I'm having a moment... And say, Pastor, you just got to choose joy. Make sure you're not within reach. Just warning. <laughs> I'm going for the throat. I, I'm just saying. <clears throat> but it's biblical. The verse I just read from Philippians starts out, Rejoice in the Lord always. That's a biblical command. And the God I love and serve... And the God I'm here to talk about, he would never command us to do something that we weren't capable of doing. So I can choose joy. I'm not beating you up if you're having a hard time with it, because I've already told you I struggle with it. So the question is, what would it take? What would it take me for, for me to find joy in my discouragement? James chapter 1, verse 2 through 4 just says it. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, 
whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance, let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature, complete, and not lacking in anything. I suspect if we had a sign-up sheet in the lobby and said, please sign up if you really want to be mature and complete in your faith, not lacking for anything. I'd like to think, oh yeah, sign me up for that. Right? But then we look at what it says before that. That it involves trials of many kinds. The testing of your faith, which produces perseverance, which again, the whole, the very word perseverance suggests it stinks. You're in a place you have to just choose to power through. And then once, once you've persevered, then it finishes its work and then you're mature and complete, not lacking in anything. It, it's kind of like another area. Kind of like me saying, you know, I'd really like to lose 20 pounds. Well, no, I don't want to change anything about my lifestyle or what I eat or anything. I just want to wake up one day and have it be gone. I, oh, hallelujah, Lord, I want to be spiritual. I want to be a spiritual giant. <clears throat> You're going to have to pay your dues. Now, I'm not saying you need to look for it. It'll find you. But at James chapter 1, verse 2 says, Consider it pure joy. To me, the fact that it says consider it tells me that that's a choice. I'm choosing. And again, I know, don't run up to me. Hallelujah, I'm suffering like all get out. No. But understand that God is in it. And he wants to walk through it with you. Consider it pure joy. It's a choice. Psalm, I, I love the psalmist. I mean, I, going through a time a while back and and i i went to the psalms and and if you could see my devotional bible that sits right by my command center and where i do my morning stuff all these verses underlined about just persevering and trusting him and trusting him and persevering psalmist can speak to your heart that way psalm 13 verse 1 (laughs) and again surely nobody else has ever said this But he starts out this one by saying, How long, O Lord? I I mean, again, have you ever had those days? How long, O Lord, am I going to have to deal with this? How long? He starts out and he says, How long, O Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Do you think maybe, just maybe, he's discouraged? Is that a possibility? By the time we get to verse 5, he says this. Now, now again, I don't think anything's changed between verse 1 and verse 5. But he says, but I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. And again, I don't even like saying this because I fight this struggle. But to realize his love is unfailing. 
Apparently my ear changed somehow this week and this doesn't fit anymore. I don't know what happens there. But I don't, whatever's going on in our lives, his love for us has not changed. It is unfailing. Regardless of my discouragement, I can rejoice in the fact that Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay the penalty for my sin. That that does not change. I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. Friends, no matter how bad things are in my life, the fact remains that they are better than I deserve. Because were it not for the saving work of Jesus Christ, the only thing I deserve is condemnation and separation from God for all of eternity. So I can sing. I have to choose to sing his praise. And then Nehemiah 8.10, another one of my favorites. Nehemiah said, and again, I won't tell the whole Nehemiah story. It's a great one. You should read it sometime. Um, Excuse me. Nehemiah says, Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks. Send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of the... Not my joy, because my joy is pretty lame. But the joy of the Lord can be my strength, regardless of how much joy I have. So then last year, the next message was finding love in our differences. So how have I done this year with finding love in our differences? When I feel like the world is veering way off course, it's really hard for me to find love for those who view things differently. The division I noted when I discussed this last year has not not diminished. If anything, it's gotten worse. And unfortunately, I'm not sure I've done much to change that. While I may not be out running around the streets, carrying signs, or attacking people, most of you know I'm not posting stuff on social media that inflames things. But in my conversations, I have to ask, am I simply blowing, breathing on the sparks a division, or am I behaving in a way, am I talking in a way, am I thinking in a way that helps to put those embers out? What would it take for me to find love in our differences? I would start, this is me, do with it as you will, I would start with the age-old adage that explains how to get out of a deep hole. You all know that, right? First thing you got to do is stop digging. Yeah. I got to stop digging. Stop talking about the differences and striving to convince others to embrace, embrace my correct view. And please understand, I'm not suggesting we compromise the truth, but I am suggesting we figure out what it looks like to lead with love. 
an interesting visit last month from, from a friend from high school. And we were really close in high school, very, very, very limited contact since then. We did not share a faith, neither one of us, in high school. And he came back. We had a couple of really, really great visits. Um, he is now a Christ follower. But on many issues, his views and mine were not similar in the least. And we went out to dinner, and then we went back to my house. And he went line by line through a list of questions that he had for me. And they were basically challenging many of the views that are really important to me. We probably still didn't agree on much of anything when he left. But what was impactful for me was, first of all, that he cared enough to ask. And that he asked in a way that did not provoke a defensive response from me. And he may not have agreed with my answers, and I may not have agreed with his perspective, but we had a conversation. And again, I, I'm not trashing social media, but we didn't lob social media grenades at each other and memes and all the rest of it. We just had a conversation. And we left. I don't know. That, and he gave me some videos to watch, and, and they continued to make me wrestle with my positions. I, I would tell you I really haven't changed much of how I view it. But I do know my heart has been tenderized. Again, because we had a conversation. And obviously, as you well know, conversations can be hard to have sometimes. But I don't see that we're going to find love in our differences without them. And, And I just want to emphasize, he was incredibly respectful. And that prompted me to be equally respectful. When it comes to finding love in our differences, again, this is so simple, but it's so profound. For me, I need to come back once in a while and be reminded, hopefully without it hurting too much, of just how unlovely I was when Christ first loved me. And that's true for all of us. First John chapter 4, verse 19. <clears throat> we love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates his brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their, na- their brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. And, and this is really hard for me. I, I wish there were some qualifiers there. You know, loves his brother and sister who agree with them and who are doing good stuff. I could could run with that one. But it's not there. Ephesians chapter 3. Paul, as he prays for his friends in the faith, he says, And I pray that you, 
being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know that this love that surpasses knowledge, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. When I read that, I apply it in a variety of different ways, but to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, I realize my tendency is is to narrow that in and to shallow it to fit within my parameters and my expectations. But I just don't think that's biblical. Then last week on or last year on Christmas Eve, I talked about finding Christ in our world. So how have I done with finding Christ in our world? I've probably been a little better at finding what's wrong than finding Christ in our world. And it's really easy because everybody else is helping to point it out too. So again, somehow we have to filter out the voices. What would it take for me to find Christ in our world? on a more consistent basis this year? That's the question. And again, the answer's there. The baby born on the first Christmas morning and placed in a humble manger is God incarnate, God in the flesh, God with us. He is hope. He is joy. He is peace. He is love personified. Those are not ethereal concepts They are wrapped up in a person who wants a real, personal, life-changing relationship with you and I. He came to restore those characteristics in our lives as byproducts of our choosing that relationship. If you struggle this year with wondering, where is Jesus in all of this? Or if you're struggling with that right now, I would just remind you of something that I said Last year on Christmas Eve, Jesus is. Where is he? He is in your uncertainties. He is in your struggles. He is in your discouragement. And he is in the differences. I, I, I know sometimes we think the world would be better off if everybody was like us. But I would make myself nuts. I'm just saying. If you all were like me, we'd have a problem. He's in our differences. He is in our celebration and in our mourning. He is in our crying and in our rejoicing. He is in our fear and is our triumphs. He is in our losses and he's in our victories. He is in our brokenness and he is in our healing. He is in our sickness and he is in our health. He is in our life and he is in our death. Friends, take this with you this year. Wherever you are, Jesus is there. Bow your heads with me. As you bow your heads and quiet your hearts, I just invite you to join me in making a decision to strive to allow his hope, his peace, his joy, and his love to increasingly radiate out from you during this wonderful season of anticipation and preparation. Fathers, we pray that prayer. We acknowledge 
that in our own strength, in our own resources, in our own resolve, we cannot accomplish any of these things. But we also acknowledge that it is your heart's desire for us to experience all of them. And to the extent that we allow you, you will work within us and you will work around us and you will work through us to make those things increasingly a reality in our lives and a reality in our circle of influence. So, Father, what would it take? It takes us opening up to you and inviting you in and increasingly walking with you. We thank you and we praise you, Father. Amen.